Pray with me. Father, we humbly ask that through your Spirit and through the Word that we're going to look at today, that you would help us to see things from your perspective. That you would help us understand why you have said some of the things you've said in the Bible. That you would help us to comprehend how you view us and the rules and the ramifications when we break them as well as when we obey them. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one of the most familiar stories in the Bible is found in Luke chapter 15, and it's called the parable of the prodigal son. The plot is simple, and on the surface, it's actually not very gripping. No Academy Awards were won. In a nutshell, there's a father who has two sons, and the younger son gets sort of fed up with his dad. And he asks for his share of the inheritance. He receives it. He leaves home. He squanders it on sensual and frivolous pleasure. The Bible calls it wild living. But when he runs out of money, he comes to his senses, the Bible says. He returns home penitently. And to his surprise, his father receives him with open arms. However, his father's reception both angers and alienates his older brother who had not left home. And the story ends with the father appealing to the older brother to join in the celebration and forgiveness of the younger brother. And that's the story. It's interesting that Jesus never refers to the story as the parable of the prodigal son because the prodigal son is actually not the primary focus of the story. The story is as much about the older son as it is about the younger. It's as much about the father as his two sons. In fact, the word prodigal doesn't even mean wayward, as it's sort of come to be known in our culture. The word prodigal in Jesus' day meant recklessly extravagant. It literally meant to spend everything one had. As such, the word prodigal represents the father as much as it does the younger son. So this morning, in the time that we have, I just want to help us unravel this overly familiar story as we continue talking about if Jesus is so great, why does He have so many rules? If Jesus is so great, and we really do think He is great around here, but if He's so great, why does He have so many rules? In other words, what does Jesus have to say about our religion? about our rule-keeping. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Luke, the 15th chapter, beginning in the first verse. Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to mutter, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You have to understand that there are two groups of people gathered 
to listen to Jesus teach on this particular occasion. The first group of listeners is made up of tax collectors and sinners. It's made up of irreligious people, if you will, who most likely would have related to the younger brother more than the older brother. For these men and women who had gathered, these tax collectors, these sinners, these irreligious people, they observed neither the moral laws of the Bible nor the rules for ceremonial purity as followed by devout Jews in Jesus' day. Rather, they actually engaged in the very lifestyle that the younger brother became known for. The second group of listeners is literally the polar opposite from the first group. The second group of listeners described as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This group was made up of the religious people. This group was made up of people like many of us. People who held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. People who studied and tried to obey the Scripture. People who worshipped faithfully. People who prayed constantly. But we need to be careful not to assume that this parable is dedicated to the first group of listeners, the irreligious people, as we might be tempted to assume. Because the parable is actually devoted to teaching the religious people a lesson. Its primary focus is the older son, the older brother, and the group of Pharisees and teachers of the law and religious people gathered to hear. If we assume this parable is directed primarily to the first group of listeners, to the irreligious people, then we'll make this parable into some type of sentimental, warm-hearted story of forgiveness whereby Jesus' point is to help sinners find their way back home. And while that is true, it wasn't Jesus' primary point. The religious people were the ones most in need of a lesson on this particular day. And when this group heard Jesus' story, they would have been thunderstruck. They would have been offended and infuriated at what He had the audacity to suggest. For Jesus' purpose was not to warm their hearts, but to shatter their categories. He challenges with this story that is so familiar to us what they thought about God and what they thought about sin and what they thought about salvation and about religion and about rules. And Jesus' point is very clear on the surface. His point is, is that both the irreligious people and the religious people are spiritually lost. Irreligious people and religious people are both spiritually lost. Immoral people and moral people are equally lost in God's eyes. Both of those life paths are dead ends. And Jesus teaches us in this story that every thought that hum the human race has had about how to connect to God has been wrong. I don't know if you saw the movie The Lord of the Rings, but in one particular scene when the hobbits ask the ancient tree beard whose side he's on, he answers, I am not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. But there are some things, of course, whose side I'm altogether not on, he says. We need to understand this morning as we begin to unpack this story that Jesus is not on the side of the irreligious and Jesus is not on the side of the religious. Jesus is not on the side of the immoral and Jesus is not on the side of the moral. The crucial point to recognize is that generally speaking, the crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus teach on this particular day 
of everyone in the crowd, it was the religious folks, the rule keepers, who were most offended by what Jesus had to say. While it was those on the outskirts of religion and morality who were most intrigued by Jesus and who were most attracted to him. It seems like in the Bible, whenever Jesus meets a religious person and a sexual outcast, the sexual outcast is attracted to Jesus and the religious person is repelled. Whenever Jesus meets a religious person and a racial outcast, it seems like the racial outcast is attracted to Jesus and the religious person walks away. Whenever a political outcast and a religious person find themselves in close proximity to Jesus, the political outcast is intrigued by Jesus. The religious person wants nothing to do with him. And so we pick up the story in verse 11 as Jesus begins to tell this parable in order to make some very specific points that are pertinent for you and I today. He says in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. A rather uneventful beginning to the story. It starts with a request that would have left those listening to Jesus, however, completely shocked. In, in those days, when a father died, the oldest son would have received a double portion of the inheritance. So if a father had two sons, the older son would have received two-thirds of everything the father had, and the younger son would have received one-third of everything the father had. However, and it's a big however, None of this would have come into play until after the father had died. This is crucial to understanding the point of the story. By asking for his inheritance now, the youngest son was essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I want what is rightfully mine. What is coming to me, I want it now. His relationship to his father up to that point had simply been a means to an end of enjoying his father's wealth. And now he was bored with the relationship. He was done. He wanted out and he wanted what was his. And what's even more startling, however, than the audacity of this younger son to ask for his inheritance before his father had died, what's even more startling is the father's response to the younger son. This was an intensely patriarchal society in which lavish expressions of deference and respect for one's parents and elders were of supreme importance in that culture. A traditional response had a son gone to his father and requested his inheritance prior to the father passing away. A traditional response would have mandated that the father physically beat the son and kick him out of the family, never to receive a penny. This is what everyone hearing the story was expecting the father to do. This would have been acceptable in that culture. But Jesus says the father doesn't do what was expected. The father does the exact opposite. The father divides his inheritance among the two sons and he gives the portion due the younger son to the son. Now, this gets really interesting when you understand that the Greek word for property, when it says he divided the property among his sons, the Greek word for property here is not the typical word that would have been used to indicate one's income or one's wealth or one's possession. Rather, it's the Greek word bios, which actually means life. 
Luke could have used any number of words to denote capital or property or wealth or money, but he doesn't. He uses a word that means life. Because in Jesus' day, one's property holdings determined one's stand in the community. One's property holdings determined how much influence and power one had in society. And for this father to quickly liquidate a third of his property holdings would not only have lowered his standing in the community, would not only have lowered that which he owned, which was a sign of his influence and power, it was was paramount to his giving up his life on behalf of his younger son. And so we begin to see that the son was not only prodigal, in lavishly spending everything he's had, but the father was prodigal in giving up what he had on behalf of his son. Verse 13, Jesus finishes the story. He says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And the Bible says when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and yet here I am starving to death... I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe that I have and put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. We're going to have a feast and we're going to celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And the Bible says, so they begin to celebrate. This father's love for his son who wished him dead was nothing short of prodigal. It was extravagant and elaborate and all-encompassing. And up to this point in the story, every single person that's listening to Jesus tell this story understands what's going on. And they're all somewhat shocked and they're all somewhat taken back. But up to this point in the story, the religious people listening would have been feeling even more self-righteous and more prideful and more moral and more superior as a result of hearing this story. Because they didn't relate to the younger son. They related to the older son who had been obedient, who had stayed in his father's home. It was the irreligious people that related to the younger son. And they would have been overwhelmed with the gracious generosity of the Father. But the religious people, 
They were feeling quite smug at this particular point in the story. And then Jesus begins to teach them a lesson, which is the whole point of the parable. That's why Jesus ends with it. That which he ends with is always most important. And it says this in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. And the servant replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And then the Bible says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. We need to understand that when the father divided up the inheritance, giving one-third to the younger son and two-thirds to the older son, the younger son took everything that had been given to him and he went and he squandered it. He spent it. It's gone. He now has nothing. And so everything that the family is now living on is part of whose inheritance? The older son's. And so the younger son comes back home, does his little repentance thing, and now suddenly dad is spending the older son's inheritance to provide a party and celebration for the younger son. And you begin to see a little bit of why the older son was so angry at the father. So his father went out and pleaded with him, the Bible says. But he answered his father. He said, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And so Jesus ends the story. And everyone listening, especially the religious people, understood at this point that the whole point of the story was so that the religious people could learn a lesson. So, in the time that remains, I just want to make some comparisons, and I want to ask you to think about a single question. Do you most relate to the younger brother in this story? Or are you most in sync with the older brother? Are you most likely to have followed the path of the younger son, or most likely you follow the path of the older son? And just keep that in the back of your mind as we go. As we said, the younger son is like the sinners and the tax collectors. Listening to the story, the older brother, he's like the religious people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. But here's the kicker. Both the younger son and the older son are alienated from their father. Both the younger son and the older son are alienated from the father's heart. They're alienated from a relationship with the father. The younger son doesn't love his father. He simply wants his father's stuff. He doesn't want the father. But interestingly enough, by his obedient rule keeping, the older brother shows that he simply wants his father's stuff as well. He doesn't want the father. He wants his things. He wants his stuff. 
Both the younger brother and the older brother love their father's things, but they don't love the father. The younger brother tries to get his father's stuff by being very bad. And the older brother tries to get his father's stuff by being very good. You know, there are only two ways to try and control one's life. By being bad and doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it, with whomever you want to do it, wherever you want to do it. Or by trying to be very, very good and doing what is right and doing what is expected and living obediently. But in both cases, by being bad and by being good, we're still trying to be our own Savior. And this is the point of Jesus' story. While the younger brother knows that he's lost and beyond hope apart from the father, the older brother actually thinks he's following God. The older brother actually thinks he's loving his father. The older brother actually thinks he's being obedient. But according to Jesus, there is no difference between the two brothers. And at the end of the day, the father has to urge both sons to come to the feast. He has to urge the younger son, who had been so bad, who had come home and repented. He had to urge him, I want you to come in, and I want to put this robe on you and this ring on you, and I want to put these sandals on you, and I want to celebrate by killing the fattened calf, and I want to have a party because you were once dead, now you're alive. You were once lost, now you're found. And he had to convince the younger son to actually come into the celebration. And the younger son, with head down in humility, came to the party. The Bible says he also had to urge and convince the older son. The son who had been obedient. The son who had been very good. The son who had always done what his father had said. He had to convince him to come to the party. Yet only one of the sons comes to the party. The younger son comes, the older son does not. The bad son is saved in spite of his badness and the good son is lost because of his goodness. If I were to ask you the question, who has the most freedom out of these three people? Person one, a person who is not able to sin. Does that person have the most freedom? Or does person two, a person who is both able to sin and able not to sin, have the most freedom? Or does person three, a person, pardon the double negative, a person who is not able to not sin? Who has the most freedom? Looking at that, just my knee-jerk response would be person number two. The person who is able to sin, but is able not to sin, has the most freedom. After all, the person who is not able to not sin, he's in bondage. He doesn't have a choice. He has to sin. Where's the freedom in that? And person one, the person who is not able to sin, he has no choice. And if you have no choice, where's the freedom in that? So person number two, who is able to sin, but who is also able not to sin, that person must be the most free. And that's what I concluded. And I was wrong. And if you concluded that number two was the person who was most free, you're wrong as well. If we think person two is the most free, we've made two serious errors in our thinking. First, we failed to take into account the biblical definition of freedom. And secondly, we failed to understand the ramifications of what it means to sin and to be a sinner.
Like most people, we tend to think that true freedom is the ability to do whatever we want to do. If I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, wherever I want to do it, however I want to do it, I must be the most free person in the world. And we assume that the, the, the more choice we have, the more free we are. But that's not what the Bible teaches. To illustrate, let me ask you this question. Can God sin? No. He can have nothing to do with sin. He cannot sin. It is completely contrary to His very nature. So then let me ask you this question. Who's more free? God who cannot sin? Or the person who's able to sin and able not to sin who has the choice? Of course, we would conclude that God is more free than any human being, and yet God cannot sin. Friends, freedom is the ability to function in the way God designed the human being to function. That's true freedom. This is why freedom and truth are so intertwined. We have to know what our purpose is. We have to know how we have been designed as a person before we can exercise the freedom to fulfill that purpose. Simply put, we function at our best when our lives measure up to our designer's specifications. We function at our best. We are most free, not when we have choice, but when we function according to the way the designer created us to function. Take, for example, a 2009 Corvette. I sort of want to pray right now, don't you? <laughs> Arguably, this is the most amazing machine ever built for the road. A top speed of 205 miles an hour, 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds. It can go 0 to 100 faster than any car that any one of us owns here can go 0 to 50. It is an amazing piece of machinery. And yet, if you take this Corvette and you place it in the ocean, what does it do? It sinks. Now I want to cry. It sinks to the bottom. Just like every other car would. Why? Because cars were not designed for the ocean. They were designed to reach their peak potential, their peak performance. They are most free, if we could say it that way, when they are on the road going 205 miles an hour. Or 55, depending on the speed limit. Take a hammer, for example. Hammers were created to pound nails. When a hammer is pounding a nail, it is fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. Yet if you try and spank your children with a hammer, you go to jail. If you try and use a hammer for something that it was not created for, you will be in bondage very quickly. Take Apollo 11, a Saturn V rocket. There is nothing that has been built that is more majestic and more powerful and more able to go into outer space and fulfill its mission than this. But if you try and take this and find a parking space at Walmart, uh-uh, it's not going to work. It was created for one thing. It was created to go out into outer space. Friends, for something to be free, for something to reach its most potential, for something to, to, to function at its peak, it must function according to the specifications built into it by the designer. We function freest and at our best 
when we are engaged and living the way God designed us to live. And misunderstanding the kind of freedom that Christ officers, uh, offers leads to a distorted view, not only of freedom, it leads to a distorted view of sin. Why does God command us not to sin? Why does God tell us, don't do this and do this? Don't do these three things and do these three things. Are the prohibitions that God places on us in the Bible, are those meant to limit our freedom? Wouldn't some acts be harmless? And couldn't we harmlessly enjoy some acts if God hadn't simply stamped them as sin? No. We think we can. We think we can engage in some acts that we don't think are very sinful, even though God has said, don't do that. Do this. And the reason that we make this mistake in logic and judgment is because we fail to remember that sin is a serious defect in humanity. Sin can never be a virtue. That which God has prohibited can never be something that God encourages. That which God has said is wrong can never be right. That which God has said is bad can never be good. And in our thinking, we think we can justify some things. We think we can make sense of some of these things and sort of twist and bend the rules a little bit in order to be free and enjoy. But we are at our freest. We are living the way God designed us to live. Because sin, no matter how big or how little, sin, no matter how isolated or pervasive, Sin will always, always turn those who cling to it into grotesque distortions of what God intended for human beings. Sin will always make us into caricatures of the men and women and students and boys and girls that God designed us to be from the beginning. It's interesting to me that one of the things that both Christians and non-Christians, it seems, like to quote. One of the things that Jesus said that we all like to quote is when Jesus said, the truth will what? Set you free. We love that. I've got people who are far from God in my life, unbelievers who I'm friends with. They love to quote that to me. The truth will make you free as if they know what they're talking about. And I love to quote it back at them. Just trust Jesus. The truth will make you free. And both of us, are completely yanking that verse out of context and misusing it because simply knowing the truth has never made anyone free. Simply believing the right doctrine does not make us free. Simply doing the right things, knowing the right answers, doesn't make us free. This phrase that Jesus uses in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 is actually part of a very instructive discipleship statement that he makes. He says this, in context, if you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And now we've got a cause and effect going on. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. Then the truth will set you free. Truth only sets us free when we live it. 
Truth only brings freedom and potential and redemption when we live it. Not know it, but live it. Only by holding to the teaching of Christ. In the context of obeying Him and becoming like Him, can we find true freedom? James tells us that practicing God's perfect law gives us freedom. Now understand, please, Jesus doesn't teach that because we obey God, we're accepted. He does not teach that. Rather, He teaches that we're accepted through Him and therefore we obey God. We obey God because of what Christ has done. We obey Christ because of what He has brought to fruition in us. We don't obey God in order to work our way to Him. We don't obey God in order to get brownie points. We don't obey God and do the things He says do and don't do the things He says don't do in order to somehow earn His favor or make Him love us more or make Him think differently about us. I've said this many times. There is nothing you as a follower of Christ can do that will make God love you more and there is nothing you as a follower of Christ can do that will make God love you any less. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and us living that out, not on what we do. But, when we actually enter into that relationship with our Heavenly Father on the basis of His Son, our hearts will beat to obey. Our life's breath will be to be obedient to our Father because we know that it is only when we are in living in obedience to Him and what He has taught, that we will be freest and reach our fullest potential. So we don't obey to get to God. We come to God through Christ, and therefore we obey. The older brother used God to get things. That's not the gospel. Any more than the younger brother using his running from God to get things was the gospel. Those who believe the gospel obey God to get more of God. Those who believe the gospel obey God because what He has said about the human condition and our lives and how we are to live it is the most pertinent information we have. You know, we really do believe Jesus is great. We believe that everything He said is not only truth, but it's true. We believe that everything He has taught is authoritative for your life and my life today, in this culture, in this age. We believe that everything Jesus has said reveals the best possible way to live this life that we've been designed to live. And so when we become followers of Christ, when we step across the line of faith and Jesus brings us into a relationship with His heavenly Father, when that actually occurs, our best option 100% of the time is to live according to what He has taught. And when we decide not to, we do so to our own detriment and peril. 
Because what Jesus has said really is the best way. If He's the smartest person, God, who's ever lived, then what He has said about your condition and mine and what He has said about how we can live this life He's called us to live really is true. The gospel is not religion or irreligion. The gospel is not morality or immorality. The gospel is not legalism nor license. The gospel is a relationship with our Heavenly Father through His Son Jesus that is lived out in obedience to Him, A, because it honors Him, and B, because it goes best for us when we live obedient. If we know, if we truly know God's grace as a result of being rightly related to Him, then we will serve and we will love and we will give and we will pray and we will submit and we will grow and we will change and we will obey. And to the extent that we are stingy in any of those areas, we do not understand the gospel. Or to the extent that we do those things in order to get the Father to love us more, we do not understand the gospel. The gospel is about grace. The good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace means there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to merit it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. It is solely and exclusively a gift from the Father when we trust His Son when we put our faith in His Son and in what He has done on our behalf. You cannot live in disobedience to what God has said and make it to God. (laughs) You say, well, that's sort of a no-brainer. But you cannot obey all the rules and make it to God neither. You can't do that. The rules don't get you to God. Jesus gets you to God. And once a person is His, the heart changes. And the desire is to obey because it honors Him and because it's best for us. We obey rules because we really believe. We really believe that God knows best. We obey what He has said because we really believe what He has taught is truth and is true. And that when we follow that, we will live out the purpose and the design for which we were created, this side of heaven. I'm going to pray for us, and um, I just want you to think about what we've talked about. Because the reality is, if you identify mostly with the irreligious people in the story, if you identify mostly with the younger son in the story, to be honest, that's an easier position to be in to come to faith in Christ. It's those of us that are religious. It's those of us that are rule keepers. It's those of us that want to work our way. It's those of us that want to perform. It's those of us that want to do the do's and don't do the don'ts for warped reasons who have a hard time recognizing that maybe we're not as close to God as we need to be. It's the religious people, like me and you, who have a hard time finding God. 
And so I'm going to pray, and I just I hope that you will have the courage to just evaluate where you're at and what you believe. And as a result of our time this morning, that you will take a step toward the Heavenly Father who in every sense of the word was prodigal in His love for you by extravagantly and excessively and all-encompassingly has given you everything in Christ Jesus in order to woo you back to Himself. Pray with me. Father, God, thanks for this story. And we're just, we're real familiar with it. We've heard it probably dozens of times. But I pray that we will never listen to it or read it again with the same perspective. Because it's real easy for us to assume it's not about us. It's about those people that are far from God. The reality is it's about us. It's about the rule keepers. It's about the religious. And so God, if there's someone here this morning who is far from you, if there's someone here this morning who has been playing the role of the younger son, if there's someone here this morning who has been, just been living in such a way that is contrary to what you have said is the best way to live, God, I pray they would come home to you. I pray that right now they would ask you to forgive their sin and that they would step across the line of faith and that they would put their life into your hands and that they would begin to trust you and live for you. And God, if there is anyone in this room right now who has been trusting in their performance, who's been trusting in their rule keeping, who's been trusting in them doing the do's and don't doing the don'ts, I pray right now that you would literally strip that away from them and that they would see themselves for who they really are. A sinner in need of grace. God, we love you. And we are trying our best to figure out how to live this life you've called us to live. But we are confident that what you have said about life is the most accurate teaching on the subject. And so we will attempt to live as you have asked because we know that that will bring honor to you and because we know that it will go best for us. And so we thank you now in advance. We love you. And we commit the rest of this day to you. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great afternoon.